0: This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast.
1: All right, Pastor Brust. Today I have a sermon for you to listen to. It's again on the same topic that we have been addressing in the other sermons. uh, And that is the topic of how the evangelical deals with communion. And so uh, this is from Jeff Capusta, who is the pastor of Life Point Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. And so let's give them a listen.
2: Go ahead and give somebody a high five and grab a seat.
0: So the high five, is this uh, the 21st century hip equivalent of greet one another with a holy kiss?
1: I think so. This is how to keep the enthusiasm going. From the sports field.
2: It's an honor to have you guys in the house today, this Memorial Day weekend. and Today's a special day, you know. Today's a special day when we designed this service. We wanted to have a service with a little bit extra worship, and we wanted to share communion, which I'll explain a little more about. But Memorial Weekend is all about remembering, isn't it? Memorial Day is about remembering. It's about remembering the fact that the greatest sacrifice ever has taken place so that we can enjoy the freedom that we have as a country. Isn't that true?
1: Okay, so we're only like what ten seconds into this. Do you see the setup? Do you I, I, completely I, I, see
0: the setup? Right. So it's Memorial Day. The uh, do this in remembrance of me. And I, what I love actually is the, is the Memorial Day is about the greatest sacrifice ever, which I think is going in the direction of the Son of God dying for the sins of the world. And uh, no. it's apparently not that. No. No, no, that is
1: not the greatest no.
0: sacrifice. No, no. It's the, it's the, it's the uh, G.I.s on the beach of Normandy, yes, it w- which is a commendable thing and wonderfully
1: patriotic, but uh, not the greatest sacrifice ever. But you can see what's going on here. He's kind of laying this all down. He's going to wave the flag a few moments, and then he's going to make the switch over into what the chief— purpose of communion is
2: so to date they say that about 1.2 million lives have been laid down in combat for the freedom that we enjoy
1: so is that mood music that i'm hearing yeah you know the first time i heard this i did not i did not hear that at all for what for whatever reason i just listened to it through Whatever device I heard it on, I didn't hear that. When I went back and heard it again, this mood music is going to last through the entire sermon. Is that right? The whole time. And the way Chris Roseborough explains this is that he says this is an emotional manipulation technique designed for you to think that the Holy Spirit is now descending upon the audience. I I wondered about that, right? It's got to make you feel a certain
0: way. And actually, as I was uh, hearing those, you know, I'm I'm not a musician, so I can't uh, tell you what's going on musically here. But, um, you know, it it, it sounds to me like um, uh, the kind of music that you would have um, in a a wide shot of the beach of Normandy, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Mm -hmm. As as these young men are uh, jumping into the sea and running up the beaches to their death. Very maudlin. Some, some sort of background music for a documentary. That's supposed to make you feel really mm, moved. I'm not sure what the, what the thing is, but it's clearly manipulative.
2: Now, I know it's really easy on Memorial Weekend. Nowadays, it seems to be more about a barbecue, the beach, Brits Donuts. And, don't get me wrong, that's all good stuff. Deals on TVs. Right, It's easy to make it about all these other things and forget what it's really about. And so today is about remembering. It's about slowing down and it's about taking a moment and remembering that the reason we can do this is because somebody stood on the front line. Someone laid their life down. 1.2 million people. And I don't ever want to get to a place where we celebrate, but don't remember we celebrate but we don't commemorate and so if you are a related to someone who laid their life down i want you to know that this church does not take that for granted and that we honor those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice we're grateful i think about honor and i think about sacrifice and I think about the fact that today, that as we celebrate even communion as a church, that what we're doing is we're remembering another sacrifice, an even greater sacrifice.
1: Okay, good. So I think we can give him props there that at least he does acknowledge that there is an even greater sacrifice. That is good.
0: That is good. But it's interesting to me, as you've pointed out before, how much the focus is on the remembering. Mm -hmm. Uh, And actually, there was sort of a guilt trip uh, laid about, you know, on society for not adequately remembering the patriotic dead. And uh, I I wonder, not having listened to the sermon, if the guilt trip is going
1: to persist here. Uh, But it's sort of a weird way to step into this whole thing. Well, you're not beginning with the text, right? For sure. Anytime you don't or you choose not to begin with the text, it is really difficult to... Take whatever story or illustration or whatever you're trying to, you know, broadcast here, and then try to shoehorn that back into the biblical text. It is, uh, and actually, what what ultimately happens, uh,
0: doesn't it seem, uh, is that the illustration doesn't get shoehorned into the text; the text gets shoehorned into the illustration.
2: You know, Jesus said this. He said that greater love has no one than to lay down his life for his friends. You see, when Jesus said that, he knew that he was about to go lay his life down for his friends. And today, I want us to take a moment as a church and I want us to remember, I wanna preach a was mini message today, it's mini. My staff laughs at me when I tell them, it's just gonna be a short message and they're like, oh, okay, buckle up. <laughs> it's a mini message. If you wanna take notes, I encourage you to grab a note card. There's just a few things I'm gonna share with you, three passages I want us to look at title this, Never Forget.
0: There's an awful lot of I in in what he's saying, and it strikes me strange. Uh, It is no longer the authoritative proclamation of God's holy word. It's it's a matter of taste. I don't want this church to be one that doesn't remember. I want to do this. I want to do that. I've titled it thus and such. Doesn't this just completely destroy the organicity between text and sermon, between the authoritative word of God written in Scripture and the authoritative proclamation of God's holy word to his people. To me, this this is just absolutely scary uh, because whatever I want to do is what gets articulated from the pulpit, and the people are following this. They think that, you know, here's this guy who's, Whose i want us are are well they're the driving thing exactly where does this get driven I mean to me this is this is just the scariest uh, I really think that so far of anything we've heard this is about the scariest thing I've heard
1: how so what will be the the, the prophets, consequence the pro- what will be the consequence think about of the prophets
0: in Jeremiah mm-hmm. right what do they say I have a dream I have a dream It's the prophet's dream, and and, and Jeremiah discounts this, right? It's their own dream, and it's not the Lord's word that the Lord himself put into their mouths. And this is the contention between Jeremiah, a true prophet, and the false prophet. And and, and so you you get this warping, it seems to me, minimally a warping of the message, of the authoritative message of God's word uh, through the focalization of the ego of the preacher, Either it's warped, or the preacher runs off uh, and and completely drives everything in the church according to
1: his own whim. To me, that is scary. And then I read something this week, and I cannot remember where I read it. It was Luther, and he was talking about this very thing, and he said, ultimately, what this does is it makes this individual, say this pastor— Become the idol that the people follow.
0: Is th- th- this is good? I think this is exactly what I'm trying to get at. I, that that's exactly what what uh, my point is. What are they following? You know, a, a, a Lutheran pastor is an interchangeable piece. Take you out of St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas, and plop you down in uh, St. Paul's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, and replace uh, you with somebody else here. Interchangeable pieces. The people are going to hear the same authoritative proclamation from the pulpit. Devin Kearns does not need to attach his name to it, and John Bruss doesn't need to attach his name to
1: it. We're just pieces of furniture. That the Lord himself uses. Exactly. Right? But those pieces can be moved. They can be replaced. But they're going to be replaced with the exact same piece of furniture. Right, because the office is stable. And this is the thing. The
0: office was established by Christ himself, filled with, you know, flesh and blood human beings, but it's the office, and the office drives every ministerial
1: word, every ministerial action of the pastor. You know, it's interesting how we pull on one string, and it's going to affect another something else over here. All I know is, I'll tell you what I'm thinking here, not only how heinous this is that we're listening to in that re- in in the points that you're bringing out— But also, too, I'm reminded how in the evangelical world, and then even in the LCMS, in certain districts, not all, but there was this idea that the church was a movement, that it wasn't an institution with offices. That's it. When you replace institution with offices with a movement that has a leader and has a shelf life then you've got an issue. Yes, indeed. Yes, then it's not Jesus Christ
0: the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then it's not uh, the church built on the rock. Then it's not the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's simply a
1: movement that comes and goes. That comes and goes. Yeah. And they have leaders, and then they're replaced, and it is such a wrong way of looking at the church But we're not talking about peons in the church world who believe that the church is a movement. We're talking about the higher-ups. And when you call them on it and say, the church is not a movement, just like marriage. Marriage is an institution. It's not a movement. Exactly. Established by God himself. Can
0: I just add one last thing? Please do. What's fascinating to me here is that whim is driving the celebration of the sacrament of the altar. There is no compelling reason in the nature of the thing to celebrate the sacrament. It's because I want to remember. I want our church to be one that does remember. And so guess what we're going to do on this Memorial Day weekend? We're going to remember, and we're going to celebrate the sacrament of the altar. Which is the whim of the pastor. It's totally the whim of the pastor, and it has nothing to do—go back to your— your terminology, with the institution of Christ himself, who gives it to his believers to eat and drink for the forgiveness of their sins, and he wants them to do it often.
2: Never forget those words, they hold a lot of power in our country. Never forget
1: Never forget. I mean, I would I would think back to nine eleven. Might be one of the first times in a national usage did we did we hear this? But that's right, yeah. But uh, it was first use of the of the Shoah of the Holocaust of the Jews in um,
0: in Nazi Germany. And uh, it says uh, like if you go to the Anne Frank House, it says never forget. Uh, there's a there's a plaque on the front that says this. So, you know, the slogan's much, much uh, older, but it's really interesting that we have to appeal to a national slogan to motivate us to uh, remember uh,
1: the Lord's sacrifice, on the cross of Calvary. And again, I mean, as you can already tell, this is clearly something that's not going to offer you any benefit. The the direction that we've talked about several times before, it's always from me to God. It is my remembering, and then this is some crazy language here, but choosing never to forget. Right,
0: choosing never to forget. Yeah,
1: it's all on me,
0: isn't
2: it? You see, what we're about to do as a church, communion, or maybe you've called it the Lord's Supper, is about remembering. It's so that we would never forget. Now, maybe you're unfamiliar with what this means. Maybe you're on vacation and you're hanging out with us. It's an honor to have you here. It's an honor to have you with us this weekend.
1: It's an honor to to celebrate the men that have given their life. It's an honor to have you. If your family member gave their life, now it's an honor to everything. It's... Everything's an honor to have this, honor to have that. And can I just comment about it's flattery, isn't it? <clears throat> this is audience flattery.
0: It's an honor and uh, to, to be celebrating these people. Uh, you are celebrating the people and uh, th- that have given their lives, and so we are all honored in, by by doing this. And it, it, these are the things of uh, of an Arthex chat, and not really the things of a sermon, it seems to me. But I I did want to point out something that the sacrament. Here, well, he's not calling it the sacrament, communion or the Lord's Supper. He, he's turned it into a trigger of remembering. It's almost like a Pavlovian kind of thing. Here we've got bread and wine, and boom. It's going to
1: trigger me to remember uh, what the Lord Jesus has done. So, in a sense, you're saying that Pastor Capusta is holding up the, uh, the watch in front of the people and mesmerizing them a little bit to, to, to trigger some sort of, okay, everybody on three, let's remember. <laughs> One, two, three, now! Remember! <laughs> I, yes, but, but, but isn't it amazing that the chief
0: purpose of the sacrament is completely gone? It's not there for the forgiveness of sins. It's there to trigger you to remember what the Lord has done for
1: you in a kind of, um, uh, I mean, to me, this that that's a law mood. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt that the evangelical turns that which is gospel and makes it law. No doubt about it. And you should feel bad, isn't it the case, that
0: you should, like, if, if, you're, if you're in the presence of bread and wine, that is the Lord's Supper, and you juice. fail to remember. Juice. Re- juice. If you're in the presence of juice <laughs> and bread, and you fail to remember, boy, are you doing a, a um, that, that is just, um, what, what am I looking for? Like a big disappointment. What a waste. I'm, I'm disappointed in you.
2: But as we get ready to prepare to share communion as a church I want to give you the backstory on it I want to tell you why it's so important why it's such a special event you see communion and the Lord's Supper originally began as what was called Passover Passover now what in the world is Passover Passover is a holiday is a celebration that the Jewish people celebrate every year to this day and it's a powerful moment see for 400 years the The Hebrew people, they are the nation of God. The nation of Israel were not living as free people as God created them. They were living as slaves in Egypt.
1: Okay, this is such low-hanging fruit here. (laughs) You know, not to, like, get all up in his grill about these things, but... I want you, Pastor Buss, to understand what's going on in the seeker-sensitive mind, or at least the the mind of the seeker-sensitive pastor. He feels like he is talking to people who have never come to church, so everything is explained in the simplest kindergarten-type language and expression. I mean, he brings everything down. I heard, a, I heard an evangelical pastor in this same town, actually, uh, years ago, and he said, you want to keep the cookies on the bottom shelf. And the whole issue was basically dumb down the message, water it down. So when you react to what he is saying, this is the mindset. But there's two problems with that. Number one, the people never grow past kindergarten level. Right. Now, they would argue, an uh, evangelical seeker-sensitive church would argue, well, that's what small groups are for. Small groups led by who? Laymen. Laymen, right. Okay, so really, okay, yeah, okay, I'll grant you that. You go from kindergarten to first grade. But that's where you always stay. Well, you have to realize that the pastor, if he's always thinking like this, well, guess where he stays as well? Right there as well. Right there. Yep, yep.
0: Well, <clears throat> what, I, what I was uh, sort of chuckling at, uh, and I, you know, I, please, um, I, I don't want to sound derisive here, but whose creed was he speaking from there? God had created his people free. I'm sorry, this is the creed of Thomas Jefferson, not the creed of Scripture. Uh, scripture knows slavery. Scripture knows grades in society. It knows authority and it knows subservience. And this, this whole idea that God had created the Israelites free as some inalienable right is Jeffersonian. It is not scriptural.
1: Yeah, and somehow or another God's hands were tied over the fact that the people were, were in slavery. Where is the sovereignty of God that brought this to pass? Right, that's a really good
0: point, yes. As if God was out of control. Right, Right. we're out to lunch. Boy, that Pharaoh, he pulled a quick one on me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I gave them inalienable rights. (laughs) And in bondage, the oppression became so great, their cry out to God was heard, and God said, I hear your cries. And I'm going to raise up a deliverer for you. And God raises up a deliverer. Anybody know his name? Okay, some of you do. Moses, right? Some of you have seen the movies, all right? You know Moses. I obviously had a big beard and a staff, and he had these you know, tablets, and he got mad and broke them. That guy. That guy.
1: Well, that sums it up pretty well, don't you think? Well, I think he left the cookies on the floor.
2: So God raises up this deliverer and... Through the course of time, God says, I'm going to free you, but it's going to take a little bit of work. You're going to go before the most powerful man, and you're going to tell him to let my people go, and he's going to say no, over and over and over. You ever ask for something? You know, parents, you've got kids, have they ever asked for something about the 10th time they wore you down? It's kind of what it was like. Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh's like, no, and Moses does some miracle that God tells him to perform, and Pharaoh's like, eh, maybe, maybe not. Well, the 10th one comes around, and it's called the plague of the firstborn. And so what God says is he says, listen, I'm going to send an angel of death through the entire area.
1: All right, we're not going to be too critical of everything that he said, filling in all of the gaps that he's kind of, you know, skipped over. I, I get it. But we got to touch on this, that God was going to send an angel of death. We, we do. Uh, number one, we have
0: to touch on that. And, and, you know, let me read from Scripture. This is Exodus chapter 12. Well, this is so wonderful because I don't think we've heard Scripture yet. Not once. What he's doing is he is turning Christianity and the authoritative word of God into this plastic thing that gets represented by Hollywood. This is horrific, actually, you know, that, that, that the story is this sort of blank canvas that you paint whatever you would like to onto. I don't think he knows that he's doing this. I think he's trying to help the people understand. Fine, make the reference to the Charlton Heston movie, but then get into Scripture. The problem is, as you mentioned earlier, right, uh, the pastor stays at the kindergarten level. Actually, he's in preschool at this point in time because all he's seen is the movie. The scriptures are very clear. Exodus chapter 12, who is it? This is what the Lord says. Exodus twelve twelve. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn on the, in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And then, when we actually have the striking down, this is Exodus chapter 12, again, Twelve twenty nine. At midnight, the Lord, the Lord, struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. That was the Lord. It wasn't the angel of death.
1: What? You're telling me... I thought that there was this angel who sits over off to the side like sharpening his sword. He's always there. He's kind of like a sleeper cell like out of Jason Bourne movie, uh, just kind of disappears into the night. Good. Why, why Why? is
0: this myth out there? I think that's an interesting question. Why Why is this, when the text is so clear, why do we associate this with the angel of death? It's a sanitation of God, I think, don't you? Mm. That, that we don't like this God who strikes down the firstborn. But here we learn something about what the Passover is actually all about and what the crucifixion is all about. God actually puts to death our enemy, death. He kills it, and he kills all the enemies of of his people. And actually, let's go a step further, he kills you. He kills your old Adam in your baptism. Uh, God engages in a terribly violent thing when he saves people from sin and death, just as he engaged in a very violent thing when he redeemed his people, Israel, from the bondage in Egypt.
1: Isn't there an echo of this when we say, Lord God of Sabaoth? Good, I love that, right? Talk about that. Well, the fact that he is the commander of the armies. Commander-in-chief of the heavenly host. And what does the heavenly host have the ability to do? to kill. Exactly. And if you
0: look throughout the scriptures, right, I mean, think about those times when prophets see the, the array of the hosts, right, surrounding them. Uh, why are those hosts there? Well, they're going to kill the enemies of God's people. Read the Psalms, too. I mean, no one wants to read those Psalms, but it's all over the place. Uh, God, uh, the, the prayer of the psalmists
1: is, uh, kill our enemies, That reminds me of that passage in Joshua. I'll read it here. It's out of uh, Joshua chapter 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped, and said to him, "What does my lord say to his servant?" And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, "Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy." And Joshua did so. So, who was that, Pastor Curtis? That's the Lord.
0: It's the second person of the Trinity, isn't it? Right? And and isn't isn't that the same one who comes through Egypt, slaying, um, putting to death the enemies of God's people? You know, this but we is, don't
1: like. We don't like viewing him that way. No,
0: we don't at all. We don't. So, right, this is uh, what we're hearing here. It seems to me like dispensationalism run amok, right? Uh, in dispensationalism, you've got uh, nice God of the New Testament, mean God of the Old Testament. And really, the God of the New Testament, I don't know, what does he do? He does not about-face or he sort of negates the qualities of the mean God of the Old Testament. Which is Gnostic, is it not, with that dualism? Totally. It's, it's Manichaean Gnostic. I mean, just go on. What's happened here is that the nice God of the New Testament is read back into the Old Testament. The angel of death, not the angel of the Lord. The angel of death is the one who's going to do this sort of stuff. But listen, the only God of Scripture the only God that exists, is, is the God who is so zealous for his people that he puts their enemies to death to save them, to save them. And this is, uh, you see this throughout scripture. Uh, look at, I mean, it's a bookend kind of thing. Get to Revelation. What's going on?
1: Enemies are being smited. Exactly, exactly.
0: We don't like the, the view
1: of that. Um, no, we like that view. Do do we? Well, why don't we like this view? Because we say, well, wait a second. God is a God of love. He's not going to do that. And somehow when we say that, we are making ourselves appear to be more compassionate than God Almighty. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that
0: unbelievably ironic? Yes. Yes.
2: And I want to give you some instructions when this angel of death goes, he's going to slay the firstborn of every home, except for the homes that are marked with blood. Now, okay, I'm just going to admit that here in 2017, what I'm about to tell you sounds incredibly gross. All right, this, this sounds very barbaric, but understand that in this culture, this was pretty normal. They were a culture that understood sacrificing of animals. And so the instructions of God were that you were to take a lamb, a spotless, unblemished lamb, and you were to sacrifice it for your family, and you will take some of the blood of that lamb, and you will put it on the doorposts of the house. So, I mean, you can imagine there is blood on the doorposts of the homes of all of the Hebrews, but the Egyptians, they don't understand what's going on. They're kind of mocking this. What are they doing? Well, that night when the angel of death goes through the area, it passes over the homes of these Egyptians, or of these Hebrews. And we're told there is much crying, and this is the moment when Pharaoh says, you and all these people, get out of here. And as God is giving them these instructions, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 24, he says this. He says, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants, When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. He's about to institute a brand new celebration and ceremony. He says, when your children ask you, what does this mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians Then the people bowed down and they worshiped. And the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And So that very night, God began setting his people free. And every year after that, they would celebrate this Passover so that they would never forget. They would gather as families and they would remember and they would celebrate.
1: Okay, very elemental review. Of all that took place, but I, I help me out here because it's like he's using this preconceived notion of remembering, and it's like he's he's foisting that perspective onto not only the Old Testament, but then he's going to take it and like a rubber band stretch it over into the new as well. I think that I think that's probably where he's going
0: right ultimately. But but isn't it funny? Uh, you know, as he, as you're saying, he's stretching it over into the new. He's he's begun with something in the new, the remembrance. Mm-hmm. He's stretching it back over the okay <clears throat> over the old, so, and then he's
1: going to stretch it back so, over the. So clearly, the new. there's a lot yeah. of stretching going on
0: here. Yeah, stretching. It's Stretch Armstrong, right? What struck me as as really uh, strange here is is missing the point that by partaking of the Lamb, God is incorporating you into the body that he is saving, into the body of Hebrews that he is saving. This is what's going on with the Passover. You eat and you are saved. You paint and you are saved. This whole malarkey about the sacrament of the altar having no saving validity uh, is very strange. So let's just imagine you're Hebrew, okay? Uh, your child is uh, uh, out in the field playing around. You call him in for dinner, and he says, "No, Dad, I don't want to come on in." Uh, and so he, he I, I want to camp out tonight. I'm going to camp out. And so the child doesn't eat the lamb. The child is not in the house with a painted doorpost. What happens to the child uh, if he's the firstborn? He's slain. This is exactly what the Lord says. You know, as horrific as that might sound, that's that's what would have would have gone on. It is by actually eating that you become incorporated into the body of the saved just as in the New Testament uh, in the in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus right you are incorporated into that body of the church which the Lord himself saves. It's totally missed right this is an ordinance and the whole purpose is just remember now what's fascinating is that in addition is that this persists over time Uh, Why does the Lord set this up as a covenant uh, for for, forever for his people in the Old Testament? He sets it up as a covenant forever for his people in the Old Testament because he continues to save
2: through it. Now, I want to take you into the last evening that Jesus shared with his closest friends. If you've got your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, this is... uh, Jesus has sent his disciples on ahead. He says, go and prepare a place where we're gonna share Passover together. And so they're getting the meal ready. And then in Luke chapter 22, in verse 14, we know they're prepping the meal. This is an amazing moment. While the meal's being prepared, this is when Jesus does the unthinkable. He takes a towel and a bowl of water and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. Now you need to know there are like You know, when you're the low man on the totem pole, sometimes you gotta do the grunt work around the house. Well, washing feet was for the lowest of the low, and yet Jesus, one of the last moments that he's about to spend with his closest friends, he does what would be seen as completely unthinkable. He takes this bowl of water and he begins washing his disciples' feet. Isn't this amazing? Jesus, knowing the cross is ahead of him, Knowing what is before him is willing to stoop low to wash the feet of those that he loves. He's telling us, he's like, here's what's, here's what's important. He's like, I'm going to wash your feet. In essence, I'm going to serve you. You'll hear us say a lot, you're never more like Jesus than when you serve.
1: Oh, that is classic. That line right there. That is a line that is used in the, particularly the, the evangelical, secret-sensitive church to try to guilt people into free labor. These types of churches, they cannot exist without free labor. And so this is a, again, just like the music playing softly in the background, this is more manipulation and to, uh, and to work. And it's also sociologically savvy. Uh, one of the things that we know about
0: the generation of the millennials is that they love to do volunteer projects. Well, this will do it. Th- yeah, apparently so. And, you know, it's interesting, uh, again, um, isn't this a, a just a, a, a line out of the playbook? Uh, you know, Pastor Kearns, that whole business, uh, What Would Jesus Do?, was started right here in Topeka, Kansas, and not um, four blocks from where we are sitting right now at a congregationalist church. Uh, the pastor there invented the slogan, what would Jesus do? It's a, it's a horrible slogan because the question in Christianity is never what would Jesus do. What Jesus would do is he would die for the sins of the world. And um, we dare never arrogate uh, that to ourselves. Serving uh, doesn't make us like Jesus. Serving makes us Christians living within the vocation in which God has placed us. It makes us ultimately creaturely.
1: Well then on top of that, in a sermon about communion, somehow or another we're guilting people into serving to be more like Jesus. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> no wonder. No wonder these people are schizophrenic. Right.
2: And I tell you, we celebrate those who serve. We've got a team here called the Dream Team and we had this pep rally this morning. My goodness, I thought the roof was gonna blow off this place. We were just celebrating all that God is gonna do. We've started something called the Say Yes Campaign here at LifePoint. We're building our teams. This fall, we just know that God's gonna bring a whole bunch of new faces for us to minister to and serve. And if you're not on a, a team, if you hadn't figured out your place here around the LifePoint Church, we'd be honored to, to have you serve with us.
1: Oh my, this is a full blown commercial for serving around the church. It is.
0: Yeah, getting on one of the teams and because because he knows that God is gonna bring all sorts of new faces in. I, I wonder how
1: he knows this because that's what he's believing for.
0: Is it the sociological model that he's working with? Uh, we know that we got the right formula. I'm sure that's what it is, and I'm sure that they will see new faces. Hopefully, people who are among the, the purported uh, crowd of new faces will hear
1: this before they show up there. Well, and the idea is it's it's almost like s- saying, look at what you're missing. I mean, we gathered this morning about to blow the roof off this place. And we're so honored if you yet again if you would be a part of our our dream team.
0: Dream team. Do you that's, think that Pas- isn't, isn't that the Olympic team that that creamed everybody? Yeah, in the basketball. basketball. Sure, Yeah, sure. Right, The dream team.
1: Do you think, Pastor Bross, that you would be able to serve on the dream team? I
0: don't think I would be willing to do that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I would encourage you after the service, stop by. You'll see uh, the big old sign in the lobby says. Save people, serve people. And you'll notice the word serve is slowly getting filled in with these orange golf tees. Every time someone says yes to serving, we stick another one in there. And what we're finding is people are stepping in they're discovering their purpose. And literally, what you're doing is you are modeling what Jesus is doing in this moment, this, this last supper. He's celebrating Passover with his closest friends and he begins by serving them. I wanna encourage you, if you have not taken a step to serve, we would be honored to have you serve with us on this team. And then this evening begins to. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think about that? Well, it goes from the
1: infomercial right into back in the text. Whiplash. (laughs) That is unbelievable. So, what was it? Save people, serve people. Save people, serve
0: people. What do you What do you think about that? That is a very disconcerting thing, isn't it? Saving who saves people. The Lord Jesus does. Um, And how does he do it? Well, by dying on the cross and by incorporating them into his body through baptism and the sacrament.
1: Well, you know, we were in the uh, explanation of the third article of the Creed last night in the adult catechesis class, and you're thinking, or you're reading, he calls me by the gospel. Well, how does he do that? Through pastors.
0: Through pastors, and and, and let us not minimize uh, the role of lay people in this either. Uh, You know, a mother and father teaching their children the faith, uh, this is the Lord calling those children by the gospel. Again, this is highly vocational and not like Jesus. This is just a Christian living in his or her vocation.
1: But it's so easy for most people. I mean, even the people last night in the class, when I asked the question, how does he do How does the Holy Spirit call us by the gospel? they said the Word, the Bible, Scripture. And every time I said, well, not necessarily. There, it's even more practical than that. As you had said before, it's more dirty. There, there's more uh, dirty fingernails in this. I mean, somebody's got a name and a nose that the Holy Spirit used to call you by the gospel. That is correct. Does that help you out a little bit? Who, who is it It took a little bit of time to see that, oh, this is the Holy Spirit using people to call you by the gospel, whether it's mom or grandma who was, you know, like you're saying, teaching and catechizing, or whether it was the pastor up in front calling the people to repent.
0: Yeah, uh, interesting. I mean, uh, since we're talking about last night, we got into this with the children, too, in uh, Acts chapter 7. We've got Philip going into Samaria. And uh, all these people believe on the basis of his preaching, and he baptizes them. And then John and Peter come from Jerusalem to visit the Christians in Samaria and uh, ask them if they've received the Holy Spirit yet, and they say no. Now, this raises a huge conundrum. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been baptized and you don't have the Holy Spirit, what is going on? Um, how can you believe in Jesus without the Holy Spirit? The answer is you you, you can't. it's It's entirely worked by the by the spirit. The, the The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit, Saint Paul says in First Corinthians. And in
1: Romans, uh, what it says um, you can only say that Jesus is Lord by means of the Holy Spirit. Exactly, exactly, right. So what's going on here? Well, not
0: receiving the Spirit uh, is is uh, Luke's expression, for not having the ministry of word and sacrament uh, in the form of ordained pastors. And so uh, what do John and Peter do? They lay hands on some of the Samaritans uh, who, who had come to believe, and they receive the Holy Spirit. What is going on? Well, this is as exactly what you were saying. Um, the Holy Spirit's work in calling people to faith through the gospel. How does he do, do it? He does it with with a man
1: with a, what'd you say, a nose and a face. A nose and a name. A okay. nose and a name, exactly. So when they received the Holy Spirit, then did they start speaking in some unknown gibberish? No, they did not. How they? about, did they roll on the ground? They did not. Bark like dogs?
0: No, they did not. And they weren't more saved than anybody else. Uh, this is uh, right. I mean, let's roll back to John chapter 20, uh, where Jesus uh, comes among the ten uh, that night uh, when he rose from the dead, uh, and says, "Peace be with you." Uh, and then he says, "Peace be with you again." And then the third time, he breathes on them. He breathes on them, and he says, hagion, receive the Holy Spirit." And then, what does he say? Whosoever sins, you forgive; they have been forgiven them. And whosoever sins, you retain; they have been retained. And here he institutes the office of the holy ministry. So the spirit, the special—you know—I I, don't—I don't even know what to call it. I, I'm going to use the word dispensation. I hope nobody misunderstands me, but it's a special dispensing of the Holy Spirit for the building up of the body of Christ through the ministry of of the church um, and those who are called to the office.
2: Progress along, and in Luke chapter 22 and verse 14, we're told that when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And so after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In verse 19, and he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Verse 20, he says, in the same way, after the supper he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And what Jesus is doing is he's telling them everything is about to change. My body is going to be broken. My blood is going to be poured out. This is a new covenant. See, the old covenant was about sacrifices and keeping the law. This new covenant is based on my sacrifice that will cover the sins of the world. I am doing for you what you could never do for yourselves. And they didn't fully understand this, but what Jesus is saying is, I want you to remember.
1: There's that psychoanalyzing of the disciples. They, they really didn't understand, not to the degree that, that I understand it. That's
0: so interesting, again. Yeah, we've seen that before, haven't we?
1: And what was your point?
0: Uh, I'm going to do something for you <laughs> that you can't possibly do, but you better remember. Right. Right.
2: <laughs> I want you to remember, don't ever forget. And then if I could take you just 20 years beyond this moment, the church is spreading and churches are popping up. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 11, he's giving them some instructions. They've taken this Lord's Supper and they've abused it. It's turned into like a big old potluck. And nothing wrong with a potluck, but don't confuse a potluck with the Lord's Supper. Some people were just eating tons and some people weren't getting any. You've been to a potluck, right? You already got the back of the line and the chicken was gone. You were like, all I got is this bean dip here. And everybody got the bojangles and, you know, all the good stuff was gone. Well, they had turned it into a feast, they had stopped remembering. They had stopped, they had lost sight of what it was about.
1: Forgive me if I'm wrong here, Pastor Bruss, but does the text say that the church in Corinth forgot to remember? I'm not familiar with that uh, passage.
0: I don't, I don't think it says that they forgot to remember. Uh, let, let, should we take a look at the text? Let, would that be helpful? It would be. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for an eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. It's an interesting passage there. And so what does Paul say? Number one, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Why? What, what's vitiating the Lord's Supper? Well, people are munching it on their own. They're going off in a corner, apparently, uh, and having their own little, their own meal. This other thing, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. I mean, do you think that they're getting hammered? Look, no one in C- Corinth, in the Corinthian congregation, was either starving, that they've been bereft of their daily bread. That's that's not the thrust of what he's saying, nor is he saying that people are getting hammered. What he's saying is that when you come and you, you partake of this as individuals without doing it as the body of Christ in this place, what you're doing in essence is you are consuming this uh, supper for yourselves and other people aren't uh, having the opportunity to receive it, some are going hungry; others are full to the brim. They are drunk in that sense, and I think that's what Paul is getting at—not uh, that—not that this has turned into a like a raucous um, Oktoberfest
1: potluck. So that is not the image. The potluck image is not what Paul is speaking of at all. I don't think so,
0: because because the uh, we know already, don't we, uh, from the didache. Uh, the way that the sacrament was celebrated. Uh, this was this was actually part of the liturgical life of the church. And so this is still part of the liturgical life of the church, but there's there there's obviously something strange going on. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you that you eat. For an eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. Look, we know that people brought the elements. They brought the wine, they brought the bread. Look, we got to reconstruct the situation, don't we? Today, a church, an entire congregation has its probably it's business officer, buy the bread and buy the wine. And it's owned by the congregation. It sits in the sacristy, and then when it's time to celebrate the sacrament, you bring out the hosts and you bring out the wine. That's not how it was in the ancient church. People came from their homes with the bread and the wine. They'd bring a sack of wine and a, a loaf of bread or a, you know a flat loaf of unleavened bread. There was something in the ancient church they called the anaphora, and the in fact the didache refers to the anaphora, where you bring forward the gifts to the altar prior to the consecration. What seems to be going on here is that we know that Corinth had rich and poor, uh, and there are peop- just like any church, just like any church, right? And there are people. Uh, the rich are bringing all the stuff, and the poor potentially are are not bringing anything depending upon the, the goodness of the rich uh, to partake of the elements and, um, and that is not happening as Paul hopes it would be happening. And so you got rich family um, you know the Smiths, they get their stuff, they eat it and they're filled to the brim with whatever whatever this, thing is it's bread and and it's the forgiveness of sins and so on and so forth and you have other people who are being cut out of it entirely and paul says this is this is not the lord's supper this is not what the lord
1: himself established but paul says nothing about the fact that they're not remembering anymore
0: does he does he say that no Paul says, What do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So what we have to see here is we've got the Lexus crowd, and we've got the crowd that's riding their bike to church on Sunday morning. The haves and the have-nots. This is the division in the church. What this is, is a breakdown in the koinonia, in the fellowship, and, and we have to go back to understand what's going on in the early church to Acts 2.42, where the description that Luke gives of the early church is this, they held fast to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the koinonia, that is the sharing, and to the prayers. Uh, so what we see in Corinth is a breakdown in the sharing, the rich, look, I am obligated to my brothers and sisters in Christ to share their burdens out of love for Christ. If they have nothing, I must give them. This is falling apart even in the sacrament of
1: the altar in Corinth. And so your point is the Lexus crowd are on purpose not bringing enough of these gifts, to gifts being wine and bread, to share with the guys or families that are riding their bikes, walking to church, whatever, that really are, they cannot partake of the Lord's Supper because they don't have anything to eat. Exactly. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing?
0: That's what's happening. It's a humiliation of those who have nothing.
2: And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Verse 23, Paul says, listen, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this what? Say it with me. Do this in remembrance. There's that word. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in what? Remembrance of me. Remembrance of me. And then verse 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And here's what I wanted to show you, what we're about to do. This is something that was instituted when God set his people free from slavery. This is something that Jesus participated in. This is something that the early church has done. This is something generation after generation after generation has done. But it's about remembering. Every single time we see it, it's about remembering, remember, remember, remember. So if you write anything down today, I want you to write this down. Never forget to remember.
1: Never forget to remember, Pastor. I, I, I guess, Pastor Kearns,
0: I was going to ask you, what is this about? Then, never forget to remember. Never forget to remember. So, do you have to remember never to forget to remember? I guess yeah, so. Yeah. Don't lose those remember pills. Exactly. Uh, the, the The emphasis is, uh, he's just really beating this one home, isn't he? So every time he was talking, you know, in Paul's words here, uh, his voice raised with, "Do this in remembrance of me," and and actually, the, he asked for crowd participation. Obviously, this is, a, this is a real important point for him.
1: Oh, no doubt. Mm-hmm. But again, for the evangelical, it's all he's got. So with the mood music and with the emphasis, he's trying. I mean, I, I think the evangelicals, they work so hard at making their ordinance special. How do you make an ordinance special if you're just ordered to do it? You you can't. And so you can use, you know, as we heard David Platt, when I was listening to his sermon again on communion, you can hear that he's getting very emotional. It doesn't matter if one gets emotional and gets weepy when they talk about it. It doesn't matter if they get energetic when they're talking about it. It doesn't matter if there's mood music surrounding it. The emphasis is always going to be on trying to dress up uh, or get you to participate in a meaningful way in something that you're just ordered to do. And that's to play on the emotions. And, you know, giving Pastor Capusta some props here, you know, he did mention the early church. I found that very interesting. Most guys, his colleagues, would think that Jesus walked with his grandmother. I mean, that there's not 2,000 years of church history he does not even most of them don't even recognize that and so what they think is is that these christians who have lived and died in these two thousand years and who've written down things eh, you know we can discard it all because i'm god's gift to to the church to exegesis and so what happens here is you just kind of throw all of that out i, I mean i would say wow I'm, I'm i'm grateful that he at least mentioned the church fathers of the early church But the problem is, he hadn't read them. Obviously not, because
0: they certainly didn't believe that this was uh, merely a remembrance, merely a symbol.
2: Never forget to remember. Turn to your neighbor and say, never forget to remember. Tell them right now. Say, never forget to remember. It's easy to forget things, isn't it? Any forgetful people here Raise your hand? Where's my forgetful people at? Awesome. Some of you forgot we were changing service times this weekend. You showed up. You're like, wow, they always play this much music? Oh, no, you actually were on time. It was awesome. It was, it was awesome. You showed up at nine and caught the whole service. It was cool. But it's easy to forget. I, I, I can be a forgetful person. So there's certain things in life you, you never want to forget. Never want to forget. I mean, anniversaries are important, right? I won't ask you, raise your hand, if you ever forgot one of those. Birthdays are important, which, by the way, thank you guys for all the birthday notes this past week. My goodness, thank you. I showed up and every surface of my office was covered with birthday notes from you guys. I couldn't get any work done this week, thanks. So I'm just shooting from the hip right now, making all this up on the spot. I couldn't, no, I'm just kidding. That's not, that's not true. I did spend time thinking about this, but really I spent about over half a day just reading and you blessed me big time. And some of you have got... Um, Artistic skills. Some of you drew some pictures. appreciate the pictures. I like pictures. Some of you, not so much on the artistic side. What,
1: what, what is this?
0: I'm not sure. It, it's got to be, um, well, uh, what is it? Sage on the stage kind of thing. Um, or comedian? Comedian. Uh, you know, um, the, but, but obviously the church is formed around a personality and not around the proclamation of the word and the administration of the sacraments. And this is not Christ's church, the church he wants.
2: But you, did, you blessed me. And so, yeah, there's things you want to remember. Can I just give you three things to, to remember?
1: This is so interesting to me. I've already queued up another sermon for us to listen to on communion. And the pastor is going to say yet again, when it comes to remember, there are three things to do, just like we have here. Again, it's like when we talk about that direction being towards God rather than God being directionally towards the center. Here's yet something more that you need to do. It's not enough to remember. You've got to do do these three ways. And so not only are you remembering what, I guess, Christ did for you, you've got to do it this way. There's always uh, help in in useful
0: advice. So, for example, if we want to tell our people how to have home devotions, we can be fairly prescriptive about these things. Uh, Again, you know, I I haven't heard this. I don't know what's going on, so uh, I'll trust you on that one.
1: But here's my issue. Mm. What he's getting ready to say, it's not in the Bible. I mean, it's nowhere found in the Bible. That's my guess. He's going to give us these three things from where? Where's the source of what he's getting ready to say? Well, we'll find out, shall uh, we?
2: Ten four. As we get ready to share in this special moment, three things to remember. The first is this. Remember the past. Remember the past. Would you write that down? Remember the past. Now, I know some of you are like, but Pastor, I've tried really hard to forget the past. Some of you are like, I'm not going backwards. That's why the rear view mirror is so small and the windshield is so big. I only glance at it every now and again. I don't go there. Listen, I'm not telling you to dwell in the past. I'm just telling you to remember the past. Remember the past. What do I mean? Remember where you were when the grace of God impacted your life? Do you remember? Remember where you were when someone told you about the love of Jesus? For some of you, that was last week. For some, that may have been Easter this year. For others, it was a long time ago, and here's what I've learned. The longer it's been since that moment when we discovered the love of Jesus, the more we begin to forget about how life-changing it was.
0: The person who said, do this in remembrance of me, was Jesus, not me. And it, it seems to me that what he's doing here is making Jesus' words out to mean this. When, when you hear these words, you internalize them, and you yourself say, do this in remembrance of me, <laughs> of
1: my life. This is not about my life. This is about the Lord. But what this pastor is saying fits with the, the DNA, so to speak, of this church that is so narcissistic anyway.
0: That, that's a really good, I, I love that uh, terminology, right? Narcissistic. And, and have we not just not just heard this about the birthday accolades and, and all this sort of thing. We used to talk 10 years ago about the church of what's happening now, but really, has this become the church of me? No doubt. One of the things that I've come to see is that the more it's about Jesus and the more it's exclusively about Jesus, the more it is about me. But the more it's about me, the less it's about me. and 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 this is a great irony. I mean, this guy's throwing these folks back upon this, you know, some moment in their life, whenever...
1: They, whenever the love of Jesus impacted their life.
0: Okay. What's happened between then and now? Have they stopped sinning? No. No. Have they, uh, have they grown uh, daily in the faith? More than likely, you know, look, if they're like me, they've, they're on a roller coaster ride or they're in the washing machine. They're just on the spin cycle going around and around and around. And what they need is not to think about themselves what they need is Jesus and that's this to me this is the sad thing about uh, about what he's
1: just told them which comes to them extra nos outside of themselves he's leading them back into themselves good I love that right this is my
0: history well mm, you know my history becomes my history truly my history only insofar as it is absorbed and assumed into the history of God's saving act and so this, has to be always in the front of my
1: mind. And I think what's going to happen here is that Pastor Capusta is now going to give them an example of looking back.
2: And so I want you to remember for just a minute, go back, go back, okay? For me, that's going back to January 26, 1981. Some of you are like, that is a long time ago. Yeah, I was uh, four going on five years old, 632 Wayward Drive, huh? Got my brother sitting right here and his family. Some good times at 632 Wayward. Some of you are gonna like Google Maps that. You'll get to see where I grew up. The old stomping ground, Rolling Knolls, Annapolis, Maryland. Good times. And it was an evening. I went into my parents' room and I had heard a lot about Jesus. You know, grown up in church, which is why parents, I think it's so important to have your kids in church. It's so important. Our kids' team works so hard to create a a. a Service every single week that our kids are gonna understand and then get them in there, their, their lives are gonna be changed. It was hearing these messages over and over that I asked my parents. I said, well, tell me more about Jesus. And I didn't understand at all, but they explained that Jesus loves me and that God loves me and he sent Jesus to suffer and die on the cross and that I could be forgiven. What's your story? What do you need to go back to to remember Maybe it's some of the struggles that you were dealing with. Maybe it was the identity. Maybe it was it, it was an addiction that you were wrestling through. And all of a sudden, when you met Jesus, you found strength. You found hope. You found life. And so I want you to remember. Remember that.
1: So is anybody really going to do that? Are they going to go up to the rail? Or maybe not in this church. It doesn't have a rail. It's got a stage. And so are they going to receive the elements of bread and juice and remember when they were four or five years of age
0: or even when they were 27 this is again isn't this remembering me and not remembering the lord jesus okay so that i mean there's a huge problem with with what he's doing here you know this interesting thing about the whole business with addictions and and other struggles in life the the idea of the of the dramatic conversion, Uh, like everybody's got a St. Paul experience. I mean, this is the thing that lingers underneath what he's saying. What about the people, what about those Christians who have never had such a dramatic experience? Are they fake? Is it real faith or not real faith? The only answer that he could give is not sure. The answer a Lutheran can give is what does God tell you? He tells you, I have chosen you. And he points you to your baptism, to the fact that you're receiving the sacrament, to the fact that you're even hearing somebody proclaim Christ and says, that is my pledge and certainty that I want to save you. And so, I mean, this is a real problem. And can I just add one last thing? This whole business of dramatic uh, conversion experiences. Lewis has, uh, you know, an observation. It's not on this exact point. But look, I mean, I was baptized when I was... Two months old. Right. I
1: mean, do you remember that?
0: I have no remembrance of this.
1: Pastor Bross! I know,
0: right? I've got the certificate on my wall, but I don't have any remembrance of it. So throughout my life, I have been kept in the faith. Have I had my ups and downs? You bet I have. Uh, Have I fallen into horrible sin? You bet I have. Have I been forgiven and relieved of horrible sin? You bet I have. However, there's nothing so dramatic as facing, like, some earth-shattering struggle or some, you know, major addiction or something like that, that some encounter with the Lord Jesus has has shaken me out of. And and C.S. Lewis um, makes this comment. When people complain about how bad Christians are, his retort is, yeah, you should have seen them without Christ. So now, think about the situation of somebody who's been baptized for their whole life virtually. Uh, Has there been any sort of major change where you can say, yeah, well, he used to be really horrible, but now you, this is a huge improvement over where he was, right? This is what he's after. He's, he's after that huge improvement kind of thing. It's, it's kind of like a self-help model of Christianity. This couldn't be further from from the, the thrust of Christianity. Christianity is not a self-help tool. It's a salvation tool.
1: What I'm hearing as well in some of the, the, the earlier comments that you were making is God works with us with promises. And so, you know, for the person that doesn't have the dramatic salvation experience, it doesn't change the fact that God has made a promise to them. Good, good, right? And,
0: and so, you know, this is, some, this is something you've been on lately in your, in your preaching, uh, and I've really appreciated it. This is about the ears and not the eyes. And, and what this guy is doing is he's saying, follow your eyes. Uh, if you've seen something dramatic, well, that's the Lord working in your life. Look, I mean, how do you know God? You know him through black words printed on a white page, spoken out loud by a pastor. This is how we know God. It's through the ears.
1: But see, that is so mundane. This is why the evangelical will actually look down upon baptism and look down upon the Lord's Supper. Because those things are so earthy. A book, bread, juice, water... It's so earthy, so mundane. So we despise the mundane and then look for the titillating, the um, sensational. This is what we look for. And actually, there's yet—we haven't even investigated this, but there's actually yet another movement within American evangelicalism that actually despises vocation and this is where you're called to change the world you're called to dream big and to do great things for god and this then is the despising of the mother who takes care of her child the despising of the dad who works at ups and has to get up every day and go through the routine or the manual laborer that has to do their job. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what God's called you to do. He's called you to do something great, with your really life. big,
0: exactly. really big. And this uh, puts a lie to what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and following. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And this is how God works, isn't it? He he always chooses to to work through the little things.
1: Well, it's the second thing that Pastor... Capusta is calling us to do when we remember.
2: Second is to remember the price. Remember the price. Remember the price that was paid for you. The Bible says that God paid a high price for you. Do you know what the price for your sins and the price for your forgiveness and your redemption was? It was the blood of Jesus, it was Jesus' life. God sent his son to suffer and die for you. That's what we're remembering.
0: Now,
1: Pastor Bruce, I have to give the guy props right here. Yeah,
0: he's hit it right on the head, hasn't he?
1: This is the gospel. I mean, he is now moving in orthodox Christianity right here. Absolutely. Pointing us to the cross of Christ.
2: So many times we feel like we're worthless. We feel like our failures have decreased our value, like our stock dropped because we messed up. Can I tell you, that's not what God says. I've oftentimes said this. If you want to know what something is worth, you have to look at what someone's willing to pay for it. God paid a high price for you. Don't ever forget that. Don't you think for a minute that your mistakes and failures make you second class, B-rate, scratch and dent, thrift store material. You were not you know, kicked out by the curb for a yard sale hoping somebody picks you up. The son of God laid down his life for you. That is the price. Don't ever forget that. Never forget that never forget that.
0: Here he is just excellent. He hits it right on the head, doesn't he? Wouldn't you agree?
1: Yeah, but you know, I have to say, as as crude as this sounds, a blind squirrel can find a nut every now and then. So yeah, I mean, I will stop and stand and applaud when any pastor stands up and preaches truth to the people. But it's I don't know. It's like a diamond in a pile of poo. <clears throat> That's a good point.
0: And, and, and really, this gets us to, well, I mean, to, to a couple of uh, important things for our people to know. Number one, the Lord can work through his word and through his sacraments, even against the, the false belief and false teaching of the, the prophet who's handling them. And for this, we are absolutely thankful. Amen. Now, that said, every Christian has a responsibility— to flee false doctrine. When the wolves come among you, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to run away and run to the voice of the Good Shepherd. And so what I want to say here is that even though God can still work in spite of falsehood when the truth is mixed in with the falsehood, that's not what he wants. It is the responsibility of a Christian to seek the voice of truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he does not want his word tinkered with. And this is major word tinkering.
1: But wouldn't you say this is the seed ground for heresy in that you have faults mixed in with little bits of the truth?
0: Exactly. Oh, seed ground for heresy and seed ground for... um, Blasphemy. Blasphemy and unbelief right i mean what so so this at this point in time this is what i'm supposed to do okay so i've got two things to remember number 1 the time that, that i came to the lord right according to pastor capusta and what the lord has done for me which of those two am i supposed to really focus on the latter oh, Okay, right, this is your answer and my answer, the latter, obviously, correct? But, but still, I've got this thing rattling around in my naga now that has to be calling into question the sincerity or the seriousness with which I encountered the grace of the Lord. This is a problem. It's not my seriousness or earnestness uh, that, that has made the Lord's encounter with me valid. It's the fact that God did it himself.
1: But the problem is that we're not even done yet. We still have have another thing to remember. Well, okay,
2: Let's let's find out. And the third thing I want you to remember is to remember the promise. Remember the promise. You say, what promise? Did you know the Bible has thousands of promises to you and I? Thousands of promises. Promises like you were created on purpose for a purpose. Promises like no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Promises like you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Promises that he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. There are promises for you to claim. Don't you ever forget that there is a promise waiting for you. There is a promise of hope, a promise of salvation, a promise of eternity in heaven. And it's all because of Jesus. Okay, so he
1: does focus on some promises here, which is really good, but man, the ones that he used are are rather, yet again, narcissistic, aren't they? They, they are, and
0: uh, he, he skipped the one that's, that's staring him right in the face, which is, for you, for, for the, the forgiveness, forgiveness of, of sins. sins. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's amazing how <clears throat> when we start talking about the promises, other than that one, uh, there's another promise like, in this world you will have trouble.
0: Sure, right, there, there are lots of such promises. Read the Petrine letters ex- as an example. Yeah, they were very uh, triumphalistic, weren't they? What we've got is a gospel sandwich, maybe. We've got two pieces of bread on the outside that are barely edible uh, because, well, they're not edible. They're entirely law in the sense that I have to have had a meaningful encounter with the Lord Jesus, meaningful somehow to me, right? Not, not because of what the Lord has done. And then I've got to uh, remember and lay hold of these victorious, triumphalistic promises. You know, I mean, like... Okay, good. Why couldn't he have done something like Romans chapter 8? Paul says this, um, he cites the psalm, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So this is the suffering of the Christian in this world, in the gap between the realization of God's promises and the sinful life that we live. But Paul goes on to say, and here, here are the promises, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now guess what Paul doesn't say? He doesn't say Jesus is going to rescue you in this life from death, He doesn't say he's going to rescue you in this life from angels and rulers and things present and things to come and powers and height and depth and any, anything else in all creation. Uh, so there's a, a, a sort of Pollyanna-ish
1: view of Christianity here, isn't there? Oh, This is Christianity made in America. Good. And we—
0: This is Kardashian Christianity. You got
1: it. You got it. And we have exported that all over the world. It's very uh, troubling.
2: So here's how we're going to proceed in our time together. We're going to take a moment, and we're going to reflect for just a second. We're going to reflect, and we're going to remember. And then we'll give you some instructions on how we're going to receive communion. Obviously, there's a lot of people. And then we're going to close out with one worship song that uh, I just believe is, man, it's going to set us on course for this summer, and it's going to declare victory and freedom in Jesus
1: Wow, that must be some song. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I mean, I hate that they cut it off on the, the tape right. here because we we can't hear it. We, I mean, we don't know what it is. This right. could help us for the rest of our, our lives.
0: One of the things that's interesting about what he just said is, it, is, is what it exposes about the worship practice of the congregation, that they need instructions for how to take the sacrament. You know, look, if you walk into any Lutheran congregation, and as a Lutheran, you always want to make sure you're sitting about the middle or in the back, just to see how they how they receive the sacrament. But the basic ingredients are there. Well, and take top, eat, take drink.
1: Sure, but on top of that, if you come the very next week. It's going to be the same. It's going to be the exact
0: same. Yep. You don't have to relearn the process. But this points out something that, that is that is sad, uh, that, that the sacrament is celebrated so infrequently here. Well, they don't call it a sacrament. This Whatever this is, the bread and wine that they pass around. Juice. Juice. Bread and juice that's passed around. Uh, celebrated so in, infrequently that he has to tell them what to do.
1: You recall, we've talked about this before, about how this type of church— is going to go to the least common denominator. So the whole idea is people who've never, ever been in church. So this is the way that they roll the cookies on the bottom shelf. I'm not going to say that you're not right here. It is infrequent. However, there's always instruction. There's always kind of thinking about the guy who's never been in church before.
0: So the guy who's never been in church before is going to be receiving the sacrament?
1: Yes, you just heard him say that you may have received Christ, or I don't think he said received Christ, but he said last week, and then he said at our Easter service. So if it was last week, I seriously doubt that the man or woman, whoever he's referring to, uh, was baptized or instructed. There's no there's no catechesis going on there. That's
0: fascinating, and you know, scary uh, when you think about Saint Paul's words: uh, "Let a man examine himself, and and so eat of the body and drink of the blood." Because and that's First Corinthians 11. We handle holy things here, and that that examination is examination of of one's own life, and and the and ultimately, it's a holding up of oneself in the mirror of God's holy law. And now, interestingly, we've heard a lot of do this, do this kind of stuff. So gospel converted into law or something like this. But we haven't really heard anything about the first through the tenth commandments and what God expects of us toward our neighbor and in this life. And so the very possibility that you could examine your life and and, and sort of understand your own sinfulness and your need for the sacrament, right? This is the thing. What's the need for the sacrament? It's, it's so that I can get the forgiveness of sins. So now they, they're handling this holy thing for entirely profane reasons or uh, misdirected reasons. And Paul says that judgment attends upon those who uh, receive the sacrament unworthily.
2: And I want to invite you into this moment. And so right now I'm going to ask everybody, would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes? And I want to give an opportunity today. I believe that whether it's in this room or whether it's in overflow, maybe you're here and you're thinking, you know what, I don't remember. I don't remember where I was when I met Jesus. Maybe for you, maybe there's never been a moment for you where you said yes to Jesus. Maybe for you, you're like, you know what, Um, I need Jesus. I'm at church today, I've made a mess out of things and if what you say is true, if what you say is in the Bible, if God really can love me and does love me, I wanna say yes to that. If you're here today and you need to begin a relationship with Jesus, can I tell you the whole reason that Jesus went to the cross was for your sins and mine? The Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody gets a pass on this one. But the Bible also says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave his life for us. And then the Bible goes on. and says that if we would declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. You don't have to question or wonder. Listen, we don't work our way into the love of God. We are loved by God, and we receive the gift of grace and forgiveness. And if you've never done that, I want you to have an opportunity right now to do it. With nobody looking around, all heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's you, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer of commitment from your heart to the very heart of God today. Just like I did, January 26, 1981. I didn't understand it all, but I understood enough. I knew who I was and I knew that I was a sinner in need of a savior. And if you're here today and you're ready to receive the gift of forgiveness and grace and eternity in heaven, would you make this your moment where you say yes to Jesus with all heads bowed, would you say this in the quietness of your heart, say, Dear God, I give you my life today. I put my faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. I open my life to you. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Change me. Save me. I choose to live for you. Say this, say, thank you for saving me.
0: Pastor Kearns, can you tell me what Pelagianism is or (laughs) semi-Pelagianism?
2: This is when we
1: think that we have some choice in the matter of accepting Christ.
0: This is unbelievable. And of course, you're teaching right now, just so our hearers know this, uh, you're teaching a course on heresies. He is not a Pelagian. He's a semi-Pelagian. Correct. But even a little Pelagius makes you an entire Pelagian. So tell us about what the problem is here.
1: The problem is, is that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or come to him, but yet he has called me by the gospel. You know, this is small catechism stuff here. It's almost like a, a timeshare. The last few moments, he's been selling us on the beauties of Christ and that he loves us, and he will save us, and he will change us. That goes back to what you were saying a little bit earlier, this, uh, this transformation type of, of language. And so he's selling us on this thing so that we will make a commitment. Good. This is where you go back into history. Even uh, what you're saying here with Pelagius came long before the first and second great awakenings. But this is how, in America, this caught steam and just went full bore, really across the entire country. Good. And, you know, your class that you're teaching right now on the heresies is so
0: so welcome and so good precisely because— as you've pointed out many, many times, heresies recycle themselves. They don't go away. Right. Uh, they, 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 they keep popping up. What would a Christian in, in 21st century America do if he knew that precisely what this pastor is, is proclaiming was roundly condemned by the entire Christian church in the 5th century? AD number 1 he would stay away and number 2 he would warn others correct this is going under the, the what the cloak of true christianity i guess so let me read ephesians 2 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works So that no one may boast. I can choose or not choose to to murder or to support my neighbor. All, All of these things are completely in my wheelhouse. What I cannot do as a sinner with a warped and perverted will is choose God. It's impossible. It is impossible. Because the Spirit... Well, these things are spiritually discerned. Correct. The natural man does not discern the things of the Spirit of God um, because they are spiritually discerned. Meaning
1: that the Spirit is the one that has to do this work of conversion.
0: Precisely. The Spirit is the one who does this work. Look, if a person is, under this misleading, giving their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what's already happened? The Lord has already called them by the gospel. He has already converted them.
1: Well, that's the good news. But the problem is that, at least in this sermon, the Holy Spirit's not been given much to work with. Well, that's
0: true. That's absolutely true. <laughs> but there was some pretty good, in a nutshell, law gospel proclamation right there, right? Well,
1: I mean, uh, Chris Roseborough calls this the gospel nugget. Just right. kind of flies in, and it flies right back out. Yeah. And And I have to say, I mean, having listened to thousands and thousands of evangelical sermons. I do have to give Kapusta props here. There's so many sermons where there is absolutely no gospel.
0: No gospel nugget. Nothing. That's and that's really unfortunate. So so here, you know, the gospel's been proclaim pretty clearly, um, but we just got this admixture of, of an ancient heresy. And the danger here, again, with the heresy, number one, is that it perverts the word of God. Faith itself is a gift from God. And uh, we've we've pointed to two passages, Ephesians chapter 2 and uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and there are many, many more that are like this. So, so it perverts the word of God. But the second thing is that it leaves you with no certainty. And God is not a God of uncertainty. The, the, the whole business, if you will, with Jesus was not a tenuous move on the part of God. It was his final word and full commitment to saving humanity. This is how God works. He speaks and he acts decisively. Unfortunately, this throws it back upon the foibles and feebleness of and folly of of a sinful human who in this life will never have the perfection of a saint, and therefore, if his conversion is up to him, must always call into question the validity of that conversion.
1: Based upon that, I'm thinking about how back in the 80s, you know, timeshares were a big deal. I remember my parents going down to different places and listening for a couple of hours to a, to a timeshare. Sales pitch, Well, now, years later, as I listen to the radio, now they're all advertising these companies that will help you get out of your timeshare contract. And so the question is, is if you could be talked into buying a timeshare, now you're talked into getting out of it. So if somebody can give you a sales job on Christianity and you be talked into making a commitment for Christ— couldn't the same be said on the opposite side, that you could be talked out of making that commitment?
0: I would think so. And, and aren't people who are being talked out of their commitment in a timeshare, haven't they been burned Sure. sense, right? I mean, sure, sure. Uh, it's not as if there's not a market for helping people get out of their timeshare. But the average stay in an evangelical uh, megachurch is under three years. Pastor Kearns, on Friday, you are going to be laying in his grave 80, what, nine-year-old?
1: Yeah, born in 1928.
0: Who has, who was baptized in the—well, f- actually not in the font in this building. He was baptized in the font in the old building. Has been a member of this Evangelical Lutheran Church since 1928. That is certain longevity. And why is this? Because it is the Lord's work and not a sales pitch by some slickster on a
1: stage. The Lord is the one who keeps us in the one true faith. He brings us to the one true faith, and he keeps us in the one true faith.
2: Now, for just another moment with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I just joined you in praying that prayer, this is my moment. This is the moment that I will remember. Next year, I'll remember this moment. Ten years from now, I'll remember this moment. If that's you today, listen, here's what I want you to do. In just a second, I'm going to count to three. And when I hit three, if that's you, I want you to throw your hand up in the air. I want you to be proud of this moment. This is the moment you nailed it down. This is the moment you said, I put my faith and trust in Jesus.
0: This is absolutely sales. What word am I looking for? Tactics. Tactics. You like this car that you just drove? This car can be yours right now, and you will remember this day forever. This is going to be the best day of your life. All you got to do is sign this piece of paper, and it's all yours. Wow. Wow. Uh <laughs> I'm flabbergasted. I knew you would not You know, I've got an uncle uh, an uncle who is um, an evangelical. He, he thinks that, you know, the way that we do things in, in the um, evangelical Lutheran church is so fuddy-duddy and doesn't have any sort of, you know, business acumen and so on and so forth. And, you know, he's exactly right. It doesn't because we do not operate according to the dictates of the latest Dale Carnegie method for getting people in your pocket.
1: But this is how to win friends and influence people.
0: It ha- it sure is. And, and and you know, this is scary. You know, we have got congregations in our state here, Pastor Kearns, out, out in the western part of the state, these blessed places, maybe one Missouri Synod Church in an entire county of 3,000 people. And you might have 50 people on a Sunday there. Guess what? There's still a pastor there, and he still serves them faithfully with God's Word and with God's sacraments. Imagine this, that completely blows out of the water any business model that you might have. That's like keeping a McDonald's open in Barrow, Alaska. How many people are going to buy a burger there? None. But it doesn't matter. Why? Because the word of God must be
1: preached to these
0: people and these people must be kept in the faith.
1: And you know, with that, I think about the sermon you preached just uh, on Reformation Day about how the kingdom suffers violence. And we think about all the ways in which the kingdom suffers violence. I would add that this is one of the ways in which the kingdom suffers violence.
0: Very good. I love that. I mean, we think about the Turks, and we think about,
1: you know, all of these groups that are constantly coming, the powers of darkness that are coming against the church. Why wouldn't this be a part of that which we're hearing that is coming against the church?
0: And sadly, it's coming up, you know, St. Paul makes this uh, comment to the Ephesian elders as he's leaving them in, in the book of Acts. At Acts 19 he says that wolves will arise among you. Uh, so the you're you're absolutely right. I mean that the kingdom of, vi- of of heaven is assaulted from within and without. It has plenty of cooperation by our own sinful flesh. Uh, and and here here's a okay. So let's just talk about the psychology that's gotten him. Let's analyze the psychology. Why the sales pitch? Well, it's because you need butts in the pew. Correct. And the more butts you got in the pe- or the what theater chairs whatever they have. Uh, the more you got in, in the pew, the more obviously the Lord is blessing your ministry. And there were scare quotes there for those who can't see what I was doing. Now, let's go back to this, uh, what we, we talked about earlier on. Uh, your your little hobby horse in the last several weeks has been, it's the ears and not the eyes. And so these folks are focusing on what they can see and not on what they are hearing, not, not on the promises of God in Christ and those promises are promises because they cannot be grasped right now. A promise fulfilled is no longer a promise. And God's promises remain for us, they are to be fulfilled. And we hold those promises only through faith in the word, which is a work by God Himself.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt that He is bowing down to the bitch goddess of success. Yes. So does He have an M div? No. Oh. So, so how is he a pastor? In your typical evangelical church, especially the mega, uh, there is no, there's no adequate preparation on the part of the pastor.
0: Theological, um, correct. Theological. Oh no, they've they've been trained well. Right, yes, right, yeah. I take yeah. that back.
1: They yeah. have been trained well
0: mm-hmm. by the Dale Carnegie method or whatever the uh, the baptized version of that is.
2: So if that's you, join me by raising your hand on three. Ready, one, two. Three, right where you are, just shoot that hand up in the air saying, this is my moment.
1: Pastor Bruss, get your hand down. (laughs) (laughs) Was that your moment? Is this your moment right now, Pastor Bruss? I I don't know. Well,
0: no, no. You know what? (laughs) Uh, I I can tell you exactly when my moment was, shockingly. I'm 50 years old. It was uh, the 17th of September, 1967. Baby. What? The waters of holy baptism, where God made me his child.
2: For just another second, there's a lot of folks. I want to see those hands. Overflow, you put your hands up as well. I see some over here to my right. Incredible. Here in the center. Absolutely. Continue to keep it up. Over to my left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody else just today? I don't want to miss anybody. Incredible. Incredible. Go ahead and put them down in church. Let's celebrate today. Let's celebrate. Well, there you go.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, um, at the end of Acts chapter two, interestingly, I, I do you read about clapping there, where there were about three thousand that were converted to the Lord that
1: day. You know, strangely, I don't. <laughs> no,
0: what did they do? What did Saint Peter say? He said, "Repent and and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of all of your sins."
1: And right. you will receive the Holy Spirit and the promises for you and your children. children. Mm. I wanted to close out this by looking at this. I have held on to this for such a long time. You can help me with some of, some of the names as we go through this. This is an excerpt from the Latin Acts of St. Saturninus. Have you, heard, have you heard of this? Okay, so let, let's, let's begin here. These persons, being Christians, have held an assembly for the Eucharist contrary to the edict of the emperors Diocletian and Maximian. So read the charge made by the magistrates of the town of Abitina in North Africa before the court of the Roman Pro Council in Carthage on the 12th day of February A.D. 304. This is an official record here. Christianity is a little over 200 years old at this point in time. So the question is, what is your rank? I am a senator, replied the Tivus. Were you present in the assembly, meaning the, the Christian assembly? He said, I am a Christian, and I was present in the assembly. Straightway, the proconsul ordered him to be suspended on the rack and his body torn by the barbed hooks. Then Saturninus, the priest, was arraigned for combat. The proconsul asked, Did you, contrary to the orders of the emperors, arrange for these persons to hold an assembly? saturninus replied certainly we celebrated the eucharist so imagine this pastor Bros, based upon the sermon that we just heard they're just getting together to remember what the past and what jesus did and their, their own
0: conversion
1: yeah he says we celebrated the eucharist why because the eucharist cannot be abandoned he says as soon as he said this the proconsul council ordered him to be put immediately on the rack with the tivus. Then Felix, a son of Saturninus, and a reader in the church, meaning they in the early church would gather together, and there would be a reading. Faith cometh by? Hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So he comes forward to the contest whereupon the proconsul inquired of him. I am not asking you if you are a Christian. You can hold your peace about that. But were you one of the assembly, and do you possess any copies of the scriptures? As if a Christian could exist without the Eucharist, or the Eucharist be celebrated without a Christian, answered Felix. Don't you know that a Christian is constituted by the Eucharist, and the Eucharist by a Christian? Neither avails without the other. We celebrated our assembly right gloriously. We always convene at the Eucharist for the reading of the Lord's scriptures. The reason that I am wanting this to be read is to show how the early Christians viewed the Eucharist compared to how it is viewed in the American evangelical church
0: yeah so so in, in other words what you're saying is that where, whenever they gather the Eucharist is celebrated
1: right yeah and they're not gonna lose their lives over something that is merely remembering, A remembering.
0: yeah they can remember with very well without
1: it can't right they? yeah mm-hmm. so for saying this enraged by the confession Anulinus ordered Felix to be beaten with clubs last of all the lad Hilarion son of Saturninus remained to be tried the proconsul said to him will you follow your father and your brothers I am a Christian he confessed in his youthful voice of my own free will I joined the assembly with my father and my brothers the proconsul then tried to terrify the boy by threatening torments he was so unaware that he was fighting not against men but against God in his holy martyrs and said I shall cut off your hair your nose and your ears, and then let you go. To this Hilarion replied clearly, Do what you please. I am a Christian. The proconsul ordered him to be returned to prison and all heard Hilarion's voice crying with great joy, Thanks be to God. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.